Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is March 8th, and we are coming to you from, I don't know, Tammy, you're like in a hotel room with a... Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a hotel room in D.C. You're like leaning up against a headboard that... Uh, <laughs> so ugly. It's like it clearly kinda, a hotel headboard. It looks kind of crazy, honestly. It's like, uh, you know, it's almost like you're in like a period piece or something like that. But today we have a very interesting... <laughs> Show we have a long conversation about Corky Lee, who is a photographer. I'm sure many of you listening to the show know who he is, but um, oh, I don't know, Tammy. How would you describe him? Like, you know, like he was sort of the chronicler of a lot of Asian American movement stuff. He was, yeah. uh, he was the man who was sort of brought Chinatown not not to white people, I don't think, but to other Asian people. I think is to itself, to, right, and, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was like the mayor of. Chinatown, New York City, and like somehow like the totally ubiquitous, tireless chronicler of Asian America through images. Right. And we have, uh, we're talking to Ken Chen, um, who wrote an essay that was published in M plus one recently. And Ken is somebody that Tammy and I have both known a long time. If you're in the Asian American mm-hmm. writing space, you likely know Ken as well. He was a, a long time head of the Asian American Writers Workshop. Uh, Tammy, this is something that you were involved yeah. in much more than me because I wasn't living in New York for much of the period. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, what, what, what was AAW? What is AAWW? Yeah, so AAWW is one of the foremost like Asian American literary organization, nonprofit, like physical spaces in the country, specifically in New York City. And I would say like under Ken's tenure, he brought AAWW to many more people and was interested in doing new things with it. I think also responding to changes in Asian America itself. So whereas I think the workshop before him, as I experienced it, was much more kind of like based around like immigration and like immigrant anxieties and kind of more um, maybe like, like it was a minor literature, you know? And then I think like in the time that Ken was at the workshop, Asian American writing became very big and like had more of a presence in the publishing world. And there were many more books and there was a more diversity of books. Uh, he also started stuff that was interested in like transnational stuff, translation, um, the way that Asians were crossing borders back and forth. So really interesting guy. He started his career as a poet and now he's working on a kind of like speculative novel memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And his, uh, he's also teaching right now at, uh, He's assistant professor and the associate director of creative writing at, at Barnard. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, we're very excited to have this conversation with Ken. I don't know. I thought it was a pretty interesting conversation. We go deep into stuff that you and I know a lot about, but we almost never talk about, which is like, <laughs> yeah. like Asian American <laughs> writing and, you know, like histories of, of literature and, um, Oh, I don't know all this stuff that I spend quite a bit of time thinking Your about. Your first but I life just as don't, a novelist. Yeah, I don't. I just don't <laughs> talk about it very much because yeah. it's very like at some level it's like it feels uh, like I don't know what's happening. So like because I don't, I actually don't. You know, like I don't really understand what Asian American literature is. And when I was coming up in the late '90s, early 2000s, and beyond because it was very difficult for as people I think listen to the show know like I just didn't couldn't get anything published for like nine years or something like that (laughs) that uh it was just like a annoyance to me you know because I was just like well 
whatever it is is not accepting of me, so fuck it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but now, look at you now, Jay. Well, now obviously I have much the more establishment man. I think a little bit <laughs> more. I don't know. Actually, you know what? I still feel the same way. But you know, I can't try. I can't. I just. I am who I am. You know. But um, I think that I have a more, <laughs> at least, capacious acceptance of what it was and why it was difficult at the time. You know. But we we go through a lot of that stuff with Ken. So I hope that yeah. you enjoy the podcast. <laughs> Ken, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing awesome. It's great to to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. I think you know, like I I think both Tammy and I met you through the workshop, right? Um, yeah. Me, definitely. I don't know how long ago it was. It must have been like 13 years ago, 12 years ago, or something like that. I remember I went to some event and Alex Chi was there and some other people were there, and I felt like I was like, oh, so this is like Asian writers. <laughs> <laughs> This is where they all hang out. Yeah. I was like, there's a workshop of Asian writers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was saying, like, I, I'm probably one of the only listeners to this podcast who thinks of you, Jay, as the writer, the, the budding novelist who wrote The Dead Do Not Improve, as opposed to, like... Listen, I would rather be thought of that way, you know. <laughs> and, and Tammy, like, I feel like I... I mean, I love all the AWW fellows, but I feel like there there was this, like, generation one that was, like, the... You know, if they were to make like a kind of ragtag like movie about the AWW, like <laughs> the, the like nerds and the eccentrics versus the like preppy like '80s you know douchebags, like you you, you and Sakshang and Rishi and those people would be like the the home team. Or something. So it's been amazing to see all of your like career develop, you know, over the last few years. It's like the Avengers or something. They all have superpowers and they join, join <laughs> together to take down the white writing establishment. <laughs> oh yeah, the superpowers are like hyper local reporting. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah, Incredibly like, boring sitcom. Yeah. You have very, I don't even know who the evil person would be, but we probably shouldn't even mention a name, you know, to not limit future opportunities. But um, you, you gotta work on the branding. The yeah. Sponsorship. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, all right. So we wanted to talk about a couple things here, right? And at the top, I think we should talk about Corky Lee. You have this great essay that was out in M plus one. Um, you know, I think that in the past year, or year and a half or so, we've seen, um, I think, uh, Real, like, I, I think that it's been surprising to me in some ways to see Corky Lee become this real posthumous figure where he's discussed in a lot, okay. you know, in not even only in the context of being um, a photographer but all, and an artist, but really just in the context of everything that's discussed, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's discussed in terms of representation conversation that happens a lot. He's discussed in terms of uh, social justice conversations that happen. So just for our listeners, before we get into this, why don't you tell us a little bit about who he was? Sure. So Corky Lee was this radical Chinese American photographer who passed away um, from COVID two years ago. And he was a sort of adventurous, heroic, communities-based guy who spent several decades just going to every single Asian American event, <laughs> especially on the East Coast. And so his photos have this kind of strange temporal omniscience where, you know, he's at the garment worker strike. He's, you know, going to Detroit to see Vincent Chin. 
but then he's also still photographing like an open mic, like in like 2015 <laughs> or something, you know what I mean? And so he was sort of like this uncle in the community where everyone kind of felt like they knew him and mm -hmm. he helped found all these organizations like the Asian American Journalists Association. And so I, I kind of became friends with him. And I remember we, we got dinner in Flushing um, with Peter Kwong and with Corky's partner, Karen. And um, it was this kind of intergenerational moment where um, I feel like he was always trying to connect or like mentor someone younger, but he, I, I kind of also realized how different we were and that like my parents were like Silicon Valley engineers you know, his parents, like Grace Lee Boggs' parents, were these toys and these immigrants. And, uh, and then over the years, he started hanging out at AWW a lot. And I realized there are all these Corky Lee documentaries out right now. And I realized that he probably hung out at the workshop a lot because he had been laid off because print, newsprint culture was collapsing. And he mm -hmm. had worked for a living at um, this printing press. Um, so he has a sort of funny life where he's sort of a scenester, even when he's quite elderly. And uh, I never thought of him as a famous person, you know, but then the moment he passed away, there were, as you said, Jay, there are like a million obituaries and think pieces. And I think it's actually not necessarily because he was the most significant character in Asian American history or art, but because his whole kind of mode of art making was about human relationships. So mm -hmm. there are like countless journalists that he'd like encountered over the years and befriended and mentored. So they, of course, wrote their, um, you know, appreciations of him. And it's like interesting to think about like, uh, like Karen Te Yamashita, Pat, or no, sorry, um, like Fred Ho. Uh, there are a lot of like very famous Asian American radicals who were actually doing direct organizing who passed yeah. away, but none of them have really gotten these like encomiums like Corky. And so I, I, I felt like moved to write about him, but then I also felt the sense that the pieces were usually kind of getting it wrong. Like, I, I don't really think mm. his work is about representation, for example. And right. I also yeah. don't think he, he's like an artist, charismatic, like artist hero. I think what's interesting about his work is precisely that it is kind of like proletarian art. And it's about him looking at you and him, you know, being him not being this auteur who's going to make a beautiful photo. And a lot of his photos are like not that beautiful or they're very sentimental. Mm -hmm. But it's about him like spending time being part of a movement. And so this poet, Trisha Lowe, emailed me and she was like, oh, like from your piece, um, I get that Corky Lee's stuff isn't representing people. It's like his photos are like a latent symptom of like coalition or solidarity or something. And so I feel like we're looking at him across this depoliticized gulf where the people writing about Corky are usually a different class or in, not part of a mass movement. And so they are kind of translating him into like post-1965 like bourgeois Asian American terms where it becomes about like art making or about being seen or something like that right right, right. so whereas I feel like his images offer this incredible tour for like the the Asian American past that everyone has sort of forgotten yeah and of course like the day after he passed away you know the one of the first like stop anti-Asian hate incidents happened uh with Bicha that guy knocked over in San Francisco so it was this like weird moment where he was sort of like the the end of like the historical Asian American movement. He was its main documentarian, but then at the same time, there's this sort of new sort of movement that was kind of like had very different politics and was all about images actually. You right. know? So it seemed like the the two had some kind of relationship.
Yeah, Tammy, I mean, this is all right within your wheelhouse, I think, right, of things you'd like to think about. I mean, like, what what, what was your sense of it, or if you want to respond to what Ken just said? Yeah, well, I wanted to echo the kind of, like, omniscient and omnipresent nature, I think, of Corky, because I didn't have a, a relationship with him that was personal, but it was the sort of thing where you would just expect to see him everywhere, and he indeed would be everywhere. And I like what you did, Ken, in your discussion of representation in the piece, where you kind of talk about... Um, this kind of like, like the stuff that we kind of rag on a lot, you, you know, on the show about like Hollywood Asians <laughs> and stuff like, like what does that kind of representation mean versus what someone like Corky was doing, who's working in a very journalistic like mode and was just concerned about capturing like different kinds of experiences actually, and not necessarily making people feel comforted that they could totally understand and wrap their minds around some sort of like aspirational image of Asian America, but rather just this sort of like, this is what it looked like. These were sort of the stakes of this particular scene. Um, yeah, I really, I thought also that figure of like this working class Asian American immigrant who is still embedded in like working class movements and, and yet sort of making art or, or sort of commenting on them like at a distance as well. I do think that that is an increasingly rare figure that there's some sort of generational and economic element that takes us a little bit away from that. Yeah. Although I think people want it, right? Like for, for me, sure. it was the, the, his, his passing sort of, uh, coincided with this a moment where I think a lot of people, including, you know, us, we're trying to grapple with what an Asian American political movement would be. Definitely. And it was because of 2020, right. It was because of George Floyd. It was because of mass protests that were happening. And then, um, this sort of effort, I think, within the class that you were talking about, Ken, which is like sort of this elite educated bourgeois class to try and locate themselves within politics and figure out who they are uh, politically. Right? Am mm -hmm. I a person of color? Am I Asian American? What does any of this mean? And then seeing these images of people doing what the, I think that it, deep down in their heart, what a lot of these people want, which is like a working class like solidarity movement. Right. Yeah. Like, rendered in black and white in these images that make Chinatown Manhattan, which is a very familiar spot to all these people, right? Like, I think, you know, like if you, if you shoot something, like if, I don't know, I think some of the photos like a Mott street or something like that, mm -hmm. right? That's a street. All these people have gone down several times to get soup dumplings or whatever, right? <laughs> As consumers. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. And so, um, or maybe like on their way to the ice cream store or whatever it is down there. <laughs> But they, I don't mean this derisively because that is also my yeah. uh, sure, association yeah. with it. But it's, uh, and then you see all these people um, who are, look like the people who you see there who maybe you almost feel alienated from because you did not grow up in Chinatown. And then you see them in a form of protest that you assume is just organic and, and interesting. And for that, and I think that people took a lot of inspiration from that, you know, but I agree with you, Ken, in that. There is a divide there, right, um, between the theorizers and then the people mm -hmm. there, which I found to be kind of interesting. And I think that, um, I don't know, I just think it was interesting overall. I want to talk a little bit about, like, the photos themselves. Great. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like a while ago, I was asked to write an essay about Corky, but it didn't end up getting published. And uh, I focus mostly on the black and white photos right like how a lot of these protest photos even the modern ones are taken in black and white mm -hmm. and it's always been interesting to me because many years ago I was, during Ferguson I, there was a photo essay I was working as an editor and this photo essay came in of photos from Ferguson and it was all black and white 
And I just had this odd moment where I could not tell when these photos were taken, right? <laughs> like, I was like, you know, are they from like 1971? Are they from like 1959? Um, and you would just have to look very closely to find like, you know, time details to figure out when they were taken. And I yeah. remember thinking that there was like this odd embalming effect that this photographer had chosen, right? Like they had decided to represent a protest that was still happening in almost immediately historicize it in a way that was very nostalgic and kind of like, I don't know, terrible to me. Right. It's like, why would you, why would you take this thing that is still happening and render it in a way where it feels historic? Right. Like what, what is the value of that outside of like some, the fact that it looks like to an untrained, not that I have a trained photographic eye, but like, it just looks like fancier, I guess, you know, but um, <laughs> the, uh, the counter argument says that there's no, no good performances in color film. That... Right, right. The counter argument <laughs> exactly. would be like, oh, well, this shows how long this history has been. Right. But I don't find that argument to be particularly persuasive. Now, my thought with Corky's photographs was that like there was something about the black and whiteness of it right there was something about that aspect of it that did sort of render some of this stuff to history and I wasn't really sure how I felt about that because we aren't as familiar with that history right that it seemed like almost the history that we're trying to link it to I don't think any of this was conscious on his behalf by the way like I just think that this is like on that level of interpretation or whatever right like um I don't know if I'm violating some maybe it was on tag thing but like uh, that it was almost trying to affiliate itself with black history, right? Like with the history of the civil rights movement. Now, I don't think that that's on that that's inappropriate in some sort of way or that there is no bonds there. But I just found it interesting to to note. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you think. about this. I mean, I, I think the thing to think about it is like it's it's very easy for any thing that's from Asian American history to become this weird side of projections for us and for those things to become almost like science fictional because like I showed, (laughs) I've shared students or interns like, uh, you know, like uh, Chan is missing or something. And they're like, what? There were Asian American people like in America during the (laughs) seventies. There's still like this continual new wave of people. And I think with Corky, like it's important to kind of imagine his material conditions in ways that also sometimes can let us off the hook, you know, and that he was, in this moment where I don't think it was quite an aesthetic choice. Like he was coming out of this newsprint culture where he was, you know, starting out probably developing his photos directly in the dark room. And uh, I mean, his original start was as a housing organizer and he was not really that interested in the aesthetics of photography. So he initially didn't own a camera. He borrowed a camera from his friend and he would go to these tenements, which still are organized by CAV now. And he would, do these sort of before and after photos that he jokingly described as weight loss photos, um, where, you know, the, the conditions would improve after he would organize the tenants to <laughs> protest. And so he, I found an interview with him in the, I think the New York Times, where he's actually at the Asian American Writers Workshop. And he said, you know, my work is just propaganda. Like, I'm not an artist. Mm-hmm. I'm a propagandist. And, but I, I think inverse, so there's this like interesting temporal thing that you hit on, though, which is that there is this way of looking back on this speculative world where they're not just historical documents, like they're modes of our own political sentimentality where we look back and we're like, oh, if only we had like a mass movement, you know, or if only, you know, Mm -hmm. Asian Americans weren't annoying and bourgeois, you know, um, 
And I think a lot of Asian Americans I know, like we, everyone has a sort of neuroses and a lot of that comes out of being within this like ideological hegemony of like uh, liberal diversity politics where Asian, I, I mean, you talk about this all the time, but like are Asians people of color? Are we black? Are we white? And I, I don't really think those terms are that useful. And so I, I feel like looking at his photos, you can't have a reaction where you say like, well, as an Asian American, blah, 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 blah. Like, I feel like you have to be like, well, what are the kind of material conditions of these people, you know, in this moment? Like, temporally, they're very different from me, not just because they're back in time, but because the further back you go, you, you're you going back in time to, uh, you know, before the influx of, like, skilled workers who are immigrants. Uh, you know, you're going back when Manhattan is still this sort of... Um, major manufacturing center. I mean, part of people are like, well, Asian Americans don't matter in liberal racial politics. And part of what this piece was secretly about was um, the Asian American, like whatever that is, is like at the center of post-war political economy because right. you have like the Korean War and the, you know, World War II, Vietnam, all these occupations that are just terrible and brutal, like more wars, more bombs dropped in the Korean War than like all of World War II. But then, so that's like the formation of the military industrial complex. But then the other part of that is these zones become developed into forms of like, you know, factory zones, which also create sex work. But that creates the conditions of like globalization. Um, and Chinatown is just sort of like this weird parallel, like archaic world next to that. And, but even in Corky's lifetime, like a lot of those sweatshops move out to Sunset Park or move elsewhere. Right. And so. I kind of feel like even Corky Lee is sort of stuck in these um, moments where he ends up not being able to take the same kind of photos, not because he's like lost his radical politics, but because politics and solidarity and things like that are not about your opinions. They're about kind of material reality around you. But there, there is this interesting, interesting frisson when you look back, like during the stop anti-Asian hate stuff, like, you know, there'd be all these people being like, ramp up the police, we got to protect grandma, you know? And then in Corky Lee's photos, you have like, the grandma holding signs being like basically f the police you know like minorities unite like support mm -hmm. you know this like cross-racial coalition against you know the police beating up chinese people um and so that part, I, I don't know I, yeah well i was just gonna say I think that part does reflect like the like a certain kind of propagandistic element in the sense that like i think he was also interested in capturing like the asian america he wanted you know which is this kind of like Working class, rebellious, right? Resistance kind of. Issue. Right. My, Not my, resistance I, like Hillary Clinton, but the other kind of resistance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, Tammy, do you want, like, do you think that that, that still is photographable, right? Like, do you think that that, the, like, I think that what Ken is, I don't know why I'm like moderating this conversation. But, like, <laughs> I, I, what do you I, think, Jay? <laughs> I, I was trying, no, no. I was really just trying to put, like, I mean, does that, is it always going to be nostalgic? to try and capture whatever remnants of these types of movements that are still there, you know, like, um, you know, like I think, uh, th there's some that do exist, like, you know, delivery e-bike delivery workers, for example. Right. Um, and then, but I think that there are people who say, well, you're not in conversation with like, for example, like radical working class, you know, uh, labor etc in Chinatown right now and my thought is always just like I don't know like first of all like I don't think that that's true but secondly like I think that uh you know you're being very nostalgic about this you know about 
uh, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about this? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing is a lot of, as, as Ken said about CAV and some of the other organizing groups in, in Manhattan, Chinatown, like a lot of those groups that he was interested in several decades ago still exist and in fact are doing very similar work. Because I do think that although there has been this political economic shift in the sorts of labor performed by Asian Americans and Asian America itself obviously has changed in its kind of social and economic character. There is still this new class of Asians immigrants that continues to populate and repopulate and replace itself in China in the Chinatowns of New York city and elsewhere. And so there are still garment shops and really low wage, like healthcare workers and all of the sort of housing organizing that quirky started doing, like most of those conditions in terms of, you know, the single bed, like shift sleep and stuff like those, those places still exist, but are smaller in number. So I do think like, yes, there's like a nostalgic element if we in our minds like exaggerate the proportion of that, but certainly it still exists and it is still something to be, to grapple with. And I also think, you know, we might be seeing some shifts in our economy also that return towards some of that stuff at different moments. So I think, I think it's very tricky. I mean, I, I was interested in what you said about black and white photography generally. I mean, with someone like Corky's work, it's kind of interesting because when you, I always thought that there was something kind of intentional about his always shooting in black and white, that he was interested in kind of like the repetition of protest and protest culture. And maybe there's, I I felt like maybe there was also like, he was both nostalgic about it and sentimental about it, but also maybe sometimes critical of it or wanting to challenge us to be like, yeah, why are we interested in this kind of repetition of protest and does protest get us anywhere there's something about when you see so many protest images over time together that are basically the same protest <laughs> that also make you feel <laughs> like, is there a sense of futility about this? <laughs> or like, you know, are we coming up against <laughs> the same problems? Like, or like, maybe that's just cynical me, but I think that there's like an undercurrent of that as well. Yeah. He- yeah. I, mean, I, I feel like in his photos, I mean, one thing I was trying to show is that like we often talk about Asian American as though it's, that's like a factual thing that is out there like Mm -hmm. a type of butterfly or something that has like a genus, (laughs) but like Asian American, like all of these things are forms of sort of like class consciousness or something like that. And they're always kind of contested and up for grabs. And so, you know, like part of the, the piece is sort of about, you know, how, how can we differently imagine Asian American history? So like Mm -hmm. Vincent Chin is always at the center of Asian American history. And there's a sort of, um, you know, there's this book about the Asian American movement by William Way, where he's like, you know, it was all like this middle class movement. Of, oh, yeah. You're not allowed to mention that you know. book. You're, yeah. You're going to get and, killed by that. But I, I think I think the thing is that there there's always different options and the left will always be like the minority, like under the shadow of failure. Yeah. And so, you know, he could like another option is these lawyers and media people like in Detroit, you know, but no one really remembers the garment workers strike. Like I, I, I checked mm-hmm. out like staying alive and a few labor histories to see like, how do mainstream people write about this? And the answer is they don't, even though it's like 10 times bigger than like the you know, actions in their books. But so, and also as Tammy says, like a lot of these groups are still ongoing. And what I wanted to do is also yeah. show that this is not actually romantic and it's not the past. Like, you know, a lot of these same groups that he founded are still around, you know, CAV is around. I, you know, I want to, at each point, try to highlight what's the contemporary, like Red Canary, you know, and for sure, yeah. Also, did a good job. Uh, yeah, and I think, um, but I, I do think there's a way where like the photos are helpful because they're ways of 
not being so neurotic in the present about these things like like <laughs> politics are impossible or like you know i think the left is stuck in this opposition between like class versus identity or like politics versus economism and like in the moment that they lived one thing i talked about in the piece is that there these things weren't separate like asia had just been like completely bombed their japanese american incarceration camps mm-hmm. and uh you know, but meanwhile, like all of the politics is actually like bound up to the labor movement and unions as like the center of organization and, uh, you know, affordable housing. So there, there's a sort of moment that maybe that part I'm being nostalgic, but there's a sort of moment where those two things seem a little bit more unified. Um, right. I, 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 one thing I have, one thought I had was that like while writing my own essay that was not published, but it was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, I'm not. I'm actually not. What was your either. argument, Jay? Or... Uh, I, my argument was basically that, first of all, it was 500 words, so it was very difficult to make an argument. But like, and that's part <laughs> of the reason why I think it was like unpublishable. I don't fault the person for not publishing it. I actually agreed with them. But like the the first was talking about the black and white images and how okay. it sort of renders everything nostalgically. But the second argument was that if there was a modern Corky Lee, right? what would he photograph or what would she photograph, right? Like what, what are the major giant protests that have taken place for Asian Americans in New York city, for example, right? Well, they would be photographing right-wing protests, right? Like they would, or what would be seen as right-wing protests. Uh, they would be protest. I know that, that um, Corky was like in some ways, very kind of embedded in the Peter, the Peter Lang movement, right? Like, um, or that he knew a lot of the organizers who were doing that, right? Um, but he was critical of that stuff. Right, right. He was. Yeah. But I mean, I think that like he was at least documenting or was like aware that it was happening, right? Like, and then um, the sort of anti Stive, the whatever, like don't stop, don't change Stuyvesant protests. Like these were huge protests on, in terms of scale, right? Like in terms of the number of people, and I think that in the end, I just wanted to end with this thought, which is that, you know, protest images are protest images. They all kind of look the same as Tammy said, right? Like that's what is interesting about them, at least to me, that there's a repetition of them. You see people with signs, you see people with, I only think about this because for a while my job was to go to protests and be yeah. on t- TV, you know? And so I like, you would, you watch like hours and hours of B-roll that the very talented DPs are taking and you realize that it all looks the same. It's very hard to have an interesting protest image. Right. So like you, some of these are taken in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Some of these are taken in Minneapolis. Some of these are taken in uh, Baltimore. But they look the same. Right. And at some level they look the same, right? There's, you can only tell it by background image and like whether the people are wearing shorts or not. Right. Um, (laughs) And that there is a, repetition to it and it almost makes it interesting because i wonder if the politics behind the protests are actually interest like are actually integral in any part to the power of the image um if you don't know about the actual politics behind the photo then as an image itself right and maybe this is why corky is saying he's a propagandist right because like the image itself is almost apolitical because they all look the same so if you took a photo of like the Peter Lang protest. Well, I, I think, I don't know if I agree with that because I think the key is to maybe not think of Corky Lee's images as images. Like, I feel like the image is actually the least interesting part. I mean, I do like formal, like art, historical, whatever, BS, right. like analysis, but I feel like the key is to think about the photo as 
like what if we thought about Corky Lee not as like a photojournalist or you know labor photographer but what if we thought about him as like a durational artist like Ten Shinsha has to like you know <laughs> do a punch clock punch every hour yeah. for like you know forever but Corky Lee has to for every night of his life go to like four like random Asian American community events you know and so <laughs> the the real the real product that he's making is not a product it's his process of like kind of like hobnobbing with people and like mm-hmm. introducing this person being to there person. and well it's it's i after i finished the piece i was reading this essay by this british marxist named christopher caldwell who writes about who wrote about aesthetics and he was like it's the bourgeois like person art critic who cares about objects like a beautiful painting or something but it's actually a marxist who cares about people and social relationships and that's the underlying like beauty of what it is to be alive and so i feel like there's a way to not get I think it's important not to get so wrapped up around like. All right, but even even if that is true, right? Like, if Corky Lee is within activists and organizing spaces within Sunset Park, Flushing, and Manhattan Chinatown, right? Over the past ten years or fifteen years. Well, the other thing I was like, going to say is, be... I think there's this geography thing, you know, where yeah. I think so. Part of the thing is jobs getting outsourced to Asia, right. but then a job can get outsourced from Manhattan Chinatown to Sunset Park, and. Right. I think that causes this collapse in the Asian American left because, you know, you go from this unionized shop on Elizabeth Street to like purposely being like in the kind of outskirts of Brooklyn. And that's the same thing that happens in Detroit and like where, you know, the people who are, you know, killing Vincent Chin, it's not just that they're racist, it's that they're part of the system where there's spatial segregation that's driven by the attempt to destroy you know, the left. But I think as Tammy said, like one thing I wanted to get at is that we're kind of heading to this return of the old left because we have these, you know, the Sikh warehouse shooting is, you know, this place that's kind of like an, an old left factory where you have these, you know, factory towns popping up. So I don't think that, I, I think there are always lots of options and there were right-wing people that Corky could have photoed, uh, photographed, you know, in the seventies, but, you know, just as they're, they're right and left wings now, I, I think it's always a contest and, you know, but but I do think we get really like tied up in knots about like oh like these Chinese people are so like they want to kill affirmative action they want to kill you know diversity they're anti-black they're pro-policing we get really worked up but I think there is a way where first of all in all politics that's a cost of doing business like there are there are right and left versions of every racial group but I think mm-hmm. there's also something where actually having class analysis is really helpful and it, I think it's helpful to think about those people as mostly like petite bourgeois, you know, people who are looking to protect their property and looking to protect their kind of investment. And some people who also like kind of sadly, like have no faith in like the American state or the welfare state to help them in any way, you know? And I I think it's also important to look at Corky's photos. Like they're, they're often not just of Asian Americans, but they're like, not even just of Asian American workers, but these sort of like degraded proletariat who are almost like the lumpen proletariat. And it's this sort of like thing between worker and non-worker I found really interesting. So I feel like the protest photos do look really different because you can notice these different class details about them. Uh, do you, know? you really think that like the difference between like, like I'm looking right now at a photo of like, a, you know, the sort of uh, Katie Tong protest, right? Which is happened in 1991, which is when WABC fired a, uh, Asian American anchor, I think, right on the television yeah. network, and it doesn't. I don't think that you can really tell the difference between this and like what I saw, for example, throughout San Francisco with the Lowell protests, right to to stop Lowell from changing to, from merit based 
Like, I, I just, I guess I just can't, like, I feel like the theorizing that, like, some of these images are going to be, like, obviously proletariat and some of them are going to be obviously petite bourgeois if you just blank out the signs. Like, I don't, I don't know. I have a hard time. But this person, in this, buying that. I'm looking at this photo now, but this person doesn't exist anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not just, like, how an image is composed. Like, this person is, I don't know if they exist anymore. Like, look at the whole thing about this photo is that it's powered by a union. Like, they're, they're wearing these caps that say local 2325, you know? And, but it's this moment where Corky actually, there's ways where the other thing we can talk about is there are ways where Corky really does care about representation because what is it we think in our, we, we're flagellating ourselves like, like, you know, like monks, Christian monks, like 2000 years ago, where we're like, oh, if only we weren't bourgeois, if only we were real. But unfortunately, I, I mean, I'm not doing that. Christian. <laughs> well, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> but these, like, the, so if only we were, like, really workerous and we're, like, down and, you know, labor, you know, whatever. But the, these people who are showing up, they are a union, but they're here supporting representation. Right. You know? And so I think there are ways where these photos help us undo these oppositions that we think about. And there is a way where Corky, this kind of second half of the essay where he does care about representation, which is, He's sort of living this moment where, you know, to be Asian is like the ultimate, like alien, abject, like terrorist person. And so he has this other part of his project that's not about labor. That's sort of about what does it mean to have racial citizenship? It's and about politics, I, yeah. It's yeah, about yeah. politics. I, I and it's about I, nationalism. And I, mm -hmm. and I, I have a lot of, I don't know. I think one thing is that a lot of the like, this is something that that got cut from the essay several times over every time I tried to put back. But <laughs> I think that, that like the like I don't believe in in these racial types where you're like as a Chinese person, blah blah blah. But I think the kind of like racial formation that's cohered around these roles are now belong to different people. So uh, you know the people who are like the like like the Sikh the the Sikh flag guy. You know, mm -hmm. like it, after nine eleven. The person who is like the alien who can never be a citizen is like the, you know, the Muslim, South Asian, Sikh, like person who looks like a terrorist. And then the person who's the other half of that, the proletariat worker, are these sort of like undocumented, you know, people. So I feel like the, the kind of class roles have changed a little bit. But I think it's interesting where he was not, a, he, he was sort of like an American patriot and he was sort of a Chinese chauvinist. But you know, he was always constantly trying to expand the kind of coalitional nature of Asian American identity. It's non-nationalistic ways. And so, you know, like his most famous photo or one of his like top three is this, you know, guy after 9-11 who's, you know, not Muslim, Sikh, you know, it's like just a few days after the attacks wearing this big flag. So those photos are interesting to look at because on the one hand, what kind of relationship should we have to America? You know, how do we recuperate it? Um, what what does it mean? I mean that that's a way where it's like thinking outside of what some people would think is Asian American. What these Chinese conservatives would would say that that's not an Asian American photo. Um, we have this other. Uh, I, I want to talk about that that part in a second here, but I want us like we'll put all these or we'll put a link to some of these photos on in the show notes. But there's this another photo I think that you know, around the time of his death that got a lot of attention for good reason is from um, 1975. And there was a protest about an incident of police brutality, right, around a man named Peter Yu. Um, and uh, there's a photo that ran on the front page of the New York Post, I guess. And it's, yes. uh, and it's of a bloodied man with like a two police officers holding him. And one of them is, you know, sort of 
wield sort of corking back well not corking back the, it's like kind of <laughs> like uh rearing back like a baton to try you know it seems like he's gonna hit him again this man is like just standing there and his face is covered in blood um i thought that was another you know like the the resonance there is obvious right the reason why people are interested in it because it is an attempt to locate one's people within the conversation that is happening right like it is a we are also beaten by the police type of thing yeah so i write about that um photo in the essay and Mm -hmm. And that's the photo where it has the grandmothers also, or I call them grandmothers, you know, right. but the elderly woman protesting. And and a lot of people did light on that photo, but I, and I think it's an interesting photo in a different way. I mean, it, like he, Corky Lee also drove those comparisons where he, there's a great essay by Ryan Wong many years ago in Hyphen where he talks about this moment and he interviews Corky and Corky Lee says, this was our Ferguson, you right. know, and you know, whatever, I don't know what to make of that comparison, but I think there is this labor subtext where, um, as with, you know, in the segregated black communities at that moment, the Asian Americans don't have jobs, they don't have schools, they don't have proper housing. And so they're this sort of like extra surplus London proletariat people. So you have all these men roaming the streets. So then the police move in and occupy Chinatown as a way to uh, control all these like dangerous racialized men. So there's a way where the structural condition is very similar to, you know, things that we would think of as not Asian American. But there's another part of it too, which is I think something that's a little bit more about these anxieties that we've been talking about. Where Peter Yu is not in a union. He's not one of these like gangsters. Like there are actual gangsters who are shooting out. He's not a cook. He's not a garment worker. He's a middle-class bourgeois engineering student. And so there are a lot of, it's an interesting moment because it is this moment where there are these people he, who might today be the the, ch- the people who are um, on WhatsApp organizing for Peter Leong, you know, but they kind of side with the, the radicals and against the police. And so it's this moment of class solidarity where that is cross-class. And I think that's something about state power where, you know, uh, if even Peter Yu, can be beaten up despite not being a gangster, mm-hmm. despite not being unemployed, then there's a sort of light bulb that goes off where these sort of shop owners who might be very conservative um, or might belong to one of these benevolent associations are like, oh, you know, we this affects us too. Yeah, he's uh, wearing so like a... It's interesting. He's yeah. dressed like a businessman. He's got a <laughs> pocket square in his jacket. Right. Um, jacket this guy is not Peter Yu, for the record. <laughs> oh, um, this is the guy. Oh, this okay. is the different guy. Um, but but this, this I, I wrote several drafts of the essay where I thought this was Peter Yu, and um, I talked with May Nye, and she was like, no, that, that there's another photograph of Peter Yu that's like this mythical photo that doesn't exist. Oh, wow. Um, Interesting. And this is actually not Peter Yu, but, um, but so I, we, I also... Do we not know who this person is? We don't know who this person is. Interesting. Um, but Peter Yu is still around. Um, uh-huh. But there's also a lot of interesting historical documents. Like I found this socialist newspaper called The Militant that was saying that this prison bus passed through the protests and it was filled with mostly black prisoners. And they started banging on the, <laughs> the doors yelling like, like, go Chinese people, like yellow power or something <laughs> like that. Right. Um, and there's another fame, like one, a very famous Quirky Lee photo has all these Chinese bros like linking arms walking down the street. And, right. Corky was always very happy with there's like a guy in the background who's uh, like a black member black, of the protest, right. like smiling. Um, Tam- so Tam- there is this yeah. element of nostalgia. Tam- mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel a nostalgia about it? You know, in some ways I find 
like uh, I want to talk a bit about the whole idea of Asian American identity because I think that like it is interesting because I do find myself emotionally moved by these uh, images and then, but I also you know feel a very tenuous and small connection to Chinatown because I'm not I don't know I'm not Chinese you know uh, if these photos are taken in Koreatown in LA I feel much differently I think um, and uh, perhaps I'm on a outlier part of that but i don't think so you know like tammy what, do, like do you do you, you know as a fellow korean do you feel like, <laughs> well i'm not as chauvinistic as you jay no just kidding um <laughs> yeah I'm, you're I, not think, a korean. <laughs> I i okay so i i feel attached to these photos because i think chinatown in the lower east side is like where i got my adult politics right as a baby lawyer because I was working with, like, we had Joanne Lum from National Mobilization Against Sweatshops on this show very early on, and um, Chinese Staff and Workers Association. That's where I was doing a lot of lawyering, like, even before I met Ken at the workshop. So I think I've, yeah, these feel, like, familiar to me. There is, like, a repetition. There's a proximity. that, And so I think even though it's not my community, I spent so much time there with a lot of groups that stage these sorts of protests that there is something really yeah, I guess like warm and familiar about them. Um, these days, they're more likely to be staged by home health aides than right. garment workers or right. to be about um, displacement than about police brutality. But generally, right. the kind of modes of organizing and the coalitions that they are trying to construct, however tenuously, are still similar. Yeah, I went to a couple of protests about uh, art galleries who are you know, yeah. trying to... Uh, this, like art gallery gentrification stuff that was happening. How many years ago was that? Maybe six years ago or something. And remember, like that guy had made turned his gallery into like what he thought was an approximation of like a shitty Chinatown front. And like, so I went and I interviewed the very, very <laughs> well intentioned and nice white people in that gallery who were just like clueless, you know. And they're um, and then they kind of had a very white fragility type. <laughs> they're like "Uh (laughs) uh-oh it was kind of amazing yeah and then of course they panicked because you know they had realized that they had said too much you know and so then they kept trying to kill the peas and i was like okay well i don't know they they were they were it was like you have not seen people into uh panic it's always interesting to me when like white people get caught up in a racial like controversy that they don't quite really understand, you know, like it was clear that the, you mean the element of like, like befuddled confusion. Yeah. They're just like, well, what, <laughs> yeah. what's wrong with this? You know, because they've actually like probably never really heard from somebody who's Asian about any of this stuff before, but they understand other dynamics, right? Because they're all, you know, these people are liberal, right? But they, but they don't understand this. And they're like, well, I'm one of the good ones type of response. Right. And it was, uh, but it was interesting to see like that protest was very, centered around um, art galleries in the art world specifically. And they had flown out like people from the East LA anti-gentrification protests to help organize and stuff like that. It was pretty, it was interesting to see, but um, it certainly wasn't like, you know, like this, right? Like it was, it was more of like a conceptual gentrification is, is wrong, but it was mostly art students who were doing. (laughs) Well, there there were those that was like, yeah, like the decolonizing the white box moment, I think in the art world. But, but I think like, if you think about like the rezoning fights, 
around, you know, in the Lower East Side, in Chinatown, all of the stuff, like, from Bloomberg to the present, like, that stuff has been pretty big, actually. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, genuinely kind of large and multiracial at times. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's, um, I guess I would say, like, I think this stuff still exists. There's definitely a continuity. I think it's getting harder and harder to sustain the sort of, like, coalitional work. But maybe it was always hard. You know, I think that's another question that these sorts of images like in the work of like one photographer also always raised for me of like it feels harder now because of conditions of capitalism but in fact like maybe it wasn't and maybe they were doing the same thing and saying the same stuff we're saying right now maybe but they could have been saying the same thing and had and had it be a little easier you know i I know i have no idea (laughs) i think they did have it easier but i don't think it's so i think we can kind of like not beat ourselves up over that but Mm -hmm. i think it's also helpful to see what you know, what were they doing? Like, I, I think mm-hmm. it's highly possible that if we somehow could magically look at every photo Corky Lee took, I would <laughs> bet, like, their plurality not of Chinese people, you know? And, like, there were a lot of photos. I tried to reference a lot of photos that didn't make it in where it's, like, someone, like, an Indian woman with a bindi, like, holding a sign, you know, saying, you know, our your your grief should not be, like, our violence. Or there's, like, like two Korean women holding a sign and one is like in Hangul and the other one is in English, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like there, there's something very, I think there are a lot of like this thing that you're getting at Jay, where you're like, I look at these photos and I don't totally feel something because I'm Chinese. Like, I feel like that is sort of, I think a lot of people feel that way. Like there was a co- comedic that, or this daily show guy, Ronnie, Ronnie, Chang, Chang, I think, yeah. like, like Rishi Sunak is the PM, but I know he's not Asian because I don't feel anything. And I thought that was so terrible because <laughs> oh it was God. like, one, you should not feel anything because he's terrible. Right. He's <laughs> but two, like I, I'm down with this, not because I'm an ethno-nationalist, you know, and I feel yeah. like what's amazing about his body of work is I, as a Chinese person looking at Chinese people, I don't relate to it, but I, like my sense of love or solidarity is not like a passive thing that gets triggered. You know, it's something that I exercise and like generate, you know, like when Bernie is like, look at someone who doesn't look at you and like tell them you'll fight for them. Like that is really moving spiritual stuff, you know? So a lot of the things Corky's involved in in his life are like, like he was on the board of like a Filipino like theater company, you know? And I'm pretty sure like all the groups he was part of, like they had no money, like no resources, um, and, but the, I, I think there's something liberating for us about how Asian American identity is like constructed. It's not, it doesn't have that warm, like, I think people look at Black Lives Matter and look at Black nationalist movements or other situations and they're like, well, I don't feel that way. And I don't, I don't think that's, I think people are looking like, why don't I feel my own sense of like exotification? Why, you know what I mean? And I feel like you can instead be liberated and be like, oh, like, I don't, there's something kind of wrong about Asian American identity because it's inherently not nationalistic. Uh, and maybe that is like an like a antibody to like protect me against infections of nationalism, whether it's American nationalism or like a individual like national Asian national nationalism. So Corky Lee's he, quote on this is I'm Asian American, so I'm a hundred percent authentic fake. Right. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that he said that to me at, at when we had dinner because I mean, you probably had this experience where you're with like your, I mean, my dad would like go to these Chinese restaurants and like order in, in Mandarin. It'd be this big show. And like, that was, that's like, you know, the restaurant is this like home of like second generation, like 
projections of authenticity. And then Corky Lee was right. like, took me to this Chinese restaurant and was like, uh, can you read this menu? Like, what is this? <laughs> what, what do you think's good here? You know, but he is like, you know, older than my dad. So it was this moment where I was like, oh, you can be kind of bohemian. You don't, there's no way to be authentic. Yeah. It was like, okay. So, um, I'm going to read a little bit of your response to it because I thought it was interesting and, and, well written too which is i love the knowing wink of this line it's carefree shrug at racial fronting ancestry and supposed tradition the way it packed a treatise about the social construction of race into a single spat out wisecrack here was a theory of ideology rather than searching for a dubious authenticity essence or nationalism corky suggested that asian american identity did not possess and also did not need any underlying reality beyond solidarity the Asian American project was an invention, a provocation thought up by small bands of liberals and radicals who came together despite their divergent homelands, ethnicities, and language. But also, what becomes clear when looking at Lee's photograph is how it or how what it meant to be uh, Asian American then is not what it means now. The historical specificity and limits of an identity designed to be capacious, right? Like you, can uh, you you or you went to Cal, right? Like yeah. you, uh, you know all of this history of what happened on Hearst Street. I'm sure, right? Like you, if you do, were not in Asian American studies major, then you knew some, right? <laughs> or like this yeah. history is all like the we, um, everyone who is not organized, right? Everyone who does not like all these sort of quotes from Third World Liberation Front, all these quotes from the from the late sixties, early seventies is that the international hotel, this idea, all this idea of this capacious idea of Asian Americanness, Um, is that what he was talking about? Do you think like, what, like, what, what, what is, what was his conception of what Asian American meant? Like, what does it mean to be like hundred percent authentic fake? I love that line that, which is why I want <laughs> to ask you. I, like, so I read it yeah. and I just started laughing. I was like, that's great. But what does he mean? <laughs> well, I, I think it, it meant something like much simpler and much more like shit that we would relate to in terms of like you know Corky <laughs> Lee who's now this venerated elder figure he right. was had all these like neurotic anxieties yeah. and things <laughs> too you know where he's like you know it's like you know being in meeting some like area studies like white guy who speaks better like Chinese or Korean or whatever <laughs> right. language than you or like you know having this strong relationship with something but it it has this sort of fraught tenuous nature. And I, I thought what he said about it was the sort of like bravado about it, where instead of being like afraid of, um, you know, I met this Asian American professional where, um, who was like an eye banker, like a, a long time ago, where he said that he practiced like almost monastically, like learning Chinese and reading all of Chinese classical literature, because one day he wanted to go to China and then someone would forget like a line of like romance of three kingdoms and then he would quote it and show them and i thought this is such a terrible internalized like it's um, amazing form of like uh insufficiency you know that you aren't fulfilling some kind of role and i feel like corky's thing is like like just admit you're fake but it's like you are what you are you're you know what i mean and you're you're authentic because everyone thinks you're like the, sure. like a real racial subject but you're also authentically like whoever you are and uh but Joe, you were saying the stuff about the the Asian American movement in California, and that surprised me in the show notes because I didn't quite know what to think about that. But I think it's interesting because there are all these moments where we think of these things as Asian American history. And I wonder if we think about a lot of those California moments because they're they fit into this boomer narrative. They're part of campuses, and then people who teach them are professors. You know? Oh yeah, of course. And there's yeah. a sort of selection yeah. bias. Whereas 
I mean, this garment worker strike is so moving and powerful and it's like, should be significant in like the history of American labor, but no one has really, I've never really heard anyone talk about it who wasn't like a labor historian or right. well, in Chinese yeah, American stuff. I was going to say, people you know? talk about it, but yeah, it's, it's <laughs> maybe just... Yeah, people do talk about it. Like there's a thing right now at Columbia where you can see more photos of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's They had shifting. a little exhibit at the Fashion Institute too, I think. It was yeah, like... I think it's, I, I actually think that this is a positive movement where it's shifting a bit outside of just sort of the Vincent, mm-hmm. Ch- what, a friend of mine called the Vincent Chin industrial complex and the, uh, and, and then, um, you know, the radical seventies, radical sixties, third world, this stuff out of Cal and San Francisco state where those are the, I do think that there are other things that are being brought to forward. And I do, I, you know, I obviously agree with your general sentiment about it, which is that the reason why is because people don't learn anything about Asian American history until they get to college. And then the people who are teaching those classes are generally for a long time were the people who participated in these movements. Right. And so um, there's like a sort of self-valorization that is happening in some sort of way. And then a minimizing, not intentional, I think, but just because perhaps, you know, that's not their field of expertise of some of the other stuff that's happening. But that, that's why I think it's California centered at least or has been well yeah and it has the historical genesis i mean that can't be yeah, yeah you're right, i mean right, that's certainly right. important and i think like there is in asian american organizing that at least that i've seen on the east coast like a conscious like homage isn't quite the right word but yeah there's like something about like thinking back to that moment and replicating or trying to like capture the best parts of that moment and i don't think that's wrong i feel like that is natural and yeah, good and his sort of historically sound in some ways um of course it's fraught with all of these contradictions but um but yeah, yeah. i do see that also coming out in quirky's photos because in addition i mean the durational artist thing i think is really interesting because it's also his work is so heavily place-based like, yes, he's following some of the migrations uh, that are determined by economic conditions in Asian American labor. Um, but he's really like a Chinatown photographer. Like that's, I don't know, that's how I think of him. And he know he knows that terrain, that actual like literal physical terrain so well. Um, yeah. So there's something about, it's like, an, it's like almost like sort of California kind of iconography that somehow transplanted here is like how I always feel when I see those photos. I, I think that, you know, I want to say like it's not. I find that part to be very inspiring, the place-based part of it, right? And I, I think that like there is like some way in which like people want to automatically dismiss the anything that is like quote representation is you know going to be sort of a corny type of concern. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the a lot of ways that even if the artist himself was resistant to some of the characterizations, like the power of it is to see people in these spaces right it is to see somebody being bloodied by the police it is to see that hey you know like we didn't like if your conception of what asian america is is like dictated by someone like yukong zhao right like the guy that he was at was at the head of like the anti-affirmative action stuff where he lives in like a nice house in florida yeah and um he is like work i don't know i think he was a chemist or something like that right and that uh that his kid goes to a school that's like 20% Asian and all the kids, Asian kids do very well in school and trying to go to the Ivy leagues, right? Like that there is this alternative way that one can live. And I think for the post 65 people about our age, but especially younger who might not know that, like that is powerful. It is a representation, you know, and I think it is important in that, uh, like 
I did suggest another way of life is possible. Right, right. And also that like, you know, you Mm -hmm. see some of these people and you're like, oh, these aren't passive people. And like, that's all stuff that's like, like, I think the the issue with the representation stuff is that a lot of times it's done in a very corny way, which is like, we can be superheroes <laughs> too in a Marvel movie. Like, who fucking cares? You know, I haven't seen a Marvel movie since Iron Man. Like, who, I, like, I yeah. legitimately couldn't care less. I don't care what the scale of any of this stuff is because I don't think that the people who want to see, like, who get their sort of kicks from seeing like those people aren't going to be active anyway, you know, but yeah. like for the generation of people who do think about these things, like these photos are extremely powerful. Like I find myself moved by them all the time, even though like I object to them on certain levels, right. Intellectually, but the power is representation, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, so well, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I think he, I mean, first of all, like the geography thing that Tammy, you were saying is really important. And like the whole essay is kind of about geography and like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to, to stick around and then have the people you're photographing get outsourced or moved. And, uh, and what does it mean to look at, I mean, we'll talk about anti-Asian hate later maybe, but what does it mean to have these photos that have no geography and, you know, try to say you can understand race outside of geography, but all the problems in the photos are actually caused by geography. Mm -hmm. Um, And how, like you were talking about home healthcare workers and those are the people who can't be outsourced. They, they have to stay in the geography. And so why couldn't, you know, why can't we think of like Yang Song, like a sex worker instead of Vincent Chan as like the paradigmatic yeah. figure. But before we get there, I want to talk about representation and corniness, which is um, <laughs> Corky has a lot of super corny photos and they're all about representation. And it's often like someone who is Asian and therefore, you know, an alien allergic, like an allergy within like America, the American body doing something that's really American, like, um, <laughs> like, a, like someone like, like the woman dressed up in like a Chinese opera costume, like standing next to the Statue of Liberty, or like, right. there's one that's like a, um, a firefighter who's Chinese, and his, the grill of his fire truck is like a dragon, you know, and <laughs> he loved this kind of like juxtaposition. And, but I'm like a snarky, annoying person, because I look at that, and I think it's really funny. But it's because I'm not in his generation where like, it would be a little bit more now, I think, to like the like dreamers holding up signs being like undocumented and unafraid, where that's like courageous and like, you know, moving in a different way. Like Corky is much more like that person than, than I am like either of them. Um, but I, I was thinking a little bit about the, the corniness of the Asian American movement, which I like wanted to write about, but I couldn't find a way to get in. <laughs> and I went to all of these um, like Zoom vigils for Corky, where there'd be a lot of people giving their tributes and like, like someone played like a sting song on his like, acoustic guitar and someone else did like played like flute and like um, had everyone meditate. And uh, there, I think there might've been some like dancing on zoom. Like it was all like really sweet and wholesome. And, and it's kind of like when you read like Karen Tay Yamashita's I hotel and all the people you're a, a surprised because everyone talks like they're in the seventies. And of course they are, you know, and they're like, groovy, man. You know, um, I, I, there was something about the corniness of the Asian American movement. I was trying to decide if it's the same corniness as the like black Panther stuff you're talking about, like, like, um, whatever, uh, what, what's that movie called? Um, the Marvel movie, the Marvel movie with the, the Chinese guy, Shang-Chi, oh, Shang-Chi. Um, Shang-Chi. Yeah. like Shang-Chi could be our <laughs> black Panther. Crazy rich Asians could be our black Panther. Right. I, I think it's a different kind of corniness, I guess is what I was trying to get at. 
Um, okay, well, why why don't we why don't we shift gears here a bit? Um, I want to like I this is something that I want to like we met um right after my first novel came out, right? And this was like I think in 2011 or something like that, or 2012, and um probably 2011. And I have been really as a passive observer now as somebody who has sort of migrated over into another field of writing, right? I've just been very struck by how many books there are by Asian people. <laughs> you know? Like I, when I was in graduate school, which was not that long, you know, I think it was like 2002, 2003, 2004 or something. Right. Like, uh, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I would go to like <laughs> labyrinth books, which was near Columbia. Right. And it was a big bookstore near Columbia and they had a huge fiction section. And I look around and it would be like Chang Ray Lee and Amy Tan and like two other people, right? Like that book Yellow, I think was always there, right? Like I think yeah. I don't even remember the two. Don Lee, Don Lee, right? Don Lee, yeah. And uh, now it's like I, you know, because of my, I get like book, you know, lists of books that are coming out, and like everything it's is like written. infinity. Yeah, there's so many books by Asian people. A lot of them are by Koreans, by the way, you know, and but like there's just so yeah, many there's so many books by Asian people. Well, like, you know, I, I'm speaking more in your former capacity as like, you know, the the, the like what happened? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why are there so many books by Asian people coming out right now? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Like I often joke, I feel like there are, there have been more Asian American books in the last five years than like all of American right. history combined, you know. <laughs> and I, I feel like it's a demographic thing where there have been enough post 65, you know, generations yeah, so. where, and it, it increases right. each time. Um, and so I think there's also this interesting thing that happens where I feel like each generation thinks that they're the first. And then, so things that you and I might've thought were like super hegemonic, like the Joy Luck Club or something is now just sort of like a weird footnote in the history of Asian American. I know I got yelled at for noting that the Joy Luck Club was like super hegemonic in my childhood and that I resisted it. And people are kind of like, what are you talking? I was like, do you not, if you like, it was the only book <laughs> like that an Asian American had written. Of course it was hegemonic. You know? <laughs> I don't it's, like, it's really weird and funny. And also the thing you're saying about the, the Korean presence, like I was thinking about, um, like the configurations are all really different too. In that when we were kids, like it, it was sort of like Chinese women were the 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 sort of like center, like Maxine Hong, Maxine, Hong. And, right, right, right. Yeah. You know, uh, Amy Tan, Fei Mian Ying, mm -hmm. and then there were sort of like other people doing things. But now it, it's a much more decentralized thing. But in a way where you wouldn't quite expect. Like I remember sometimes, like when I was at Asian American Writers Workshop, we would keep track of every Asian American book coming out and voraciously pour over, you know, book catalogs. And sometimes there would be no Asian American novel that year. And yeah. sometimes there would be no Vietnamese American book, like over several years, you know, but now like two central figures are like Ocean Vuong and Viet Nguyen and, mm -hmm. you know, Min Jin Lee, you know, obviously Korean American is like, un like replaced the like Amy Tan slot yeah. maybe. So the, it, the, 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 like for quirky, like Chinese American identity is just like, Obviously, that's like the core of Asian American identity, but now it's like not really obvious, you know, in yeah. this interesting way. Did you guys, in that earlier period when we thought there weren't very many Asian American books, how did you guys relate to books by like Salman Rushdie or like Jhumpa Lahiri? I mean, there was always like maybe something 
I mean, in addition to kind of like our usual like uh, political questions around like the categories of Asian America, I thought there were, for me, I think I knew that those, I related to those books on some level and thought of them as Asian American cultural production, but also I think because a lot of South Asian writers um, came from English because of, you know, the way that colonization Uh, worked in South Asia, that their production in America felt different or was had different kind of constraints or circumstances than like East Asian immigrants. Uh, But I was curious, like how you guys thought about those books or if you did think about those books as Asian American books. I feel like I have like a pre and post AWW kind of view of all of these things mm. where I like I have, you know, I have my kind of like uh, dogmatic lefty like post AWW thing. And then I have my like naive, like, you know, innocent <laughs> reader phase before that. Um, uh, so, I, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of see what you're saying. I think Jumpa is a little different because she's often writing from a position of, um, like there, there is a kind of like figure that is more like an Asian American. Definitely, yeah. Assimilating. yeah. And, and part of it is about like become, assimilating into like a upper class white. Right, the context, Harvard. You know? so kinda, there's like, yeah. Yeah, like there's a part in the namesake, I think, where the, the white dad, who's the dad of the, the Indian guy's girl, the girlfriend, the white girlfriend of the Indian guy is like chopping with a knife and it, it like doing it really well. And he's like, how do you do that? Like, do you have skills? Like, you know, and then he's like, you just buy an expensive knife. And then he's like, and like Indian guy, oh. and I, <laughs> hey, don't I this is really that. minor, That's but so when, when I read that, I was like, oh, I totally relate to that. Like, because I, you know, my parents just had like crappy, like kitchenware, you know, and it's this thing where you're like, oh, there are these like <laughs> consumption goods. Oh like, yeah. Rich yeah. I considered buying one I, last week. I was at Sur La Tab and I was like, should I buy a, should I buy an expensive knife? And then I, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> But there is this thing oh. of like, like it, like with Rushdie, it's a little different because it's like, is is one way out of Asian American literature is it to be a world literature or the historical yeah, novel? You right. know, so Pachinko in a way is like a little bit like that, though less like postmodern, obviously. And like Hajin was sort of yeah. like that, you know. And and if you look yeah. at Rushdie's generation, you have these people like like Tim, Timothy Mo, who uh, you know is writing all these kind of books where there there's one book that's like him writing this sort of like. Uh, like Vietnam War book or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think there there was a it's lot of prominence in that generation. Right. It seems like the center of it like went from basically Bay Area Chinese to kind of a suburban Korean American, right? Who is dealing with, as you said, in a Jhumpa Lahiri type of tradition, dealing with perils of assimilation into the upper middle class. At least that's what I've seen. Now, I think that there are a lot of counterexamples to that and that some of the counterexamples happen to also be the very famous people, like you said, like Ocean. Uh, but I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's like, the, it's also happening in film, right? Where it seems like I, A24, like every single movie they put out <laughs> is about like Asian people, right? Or it's, and, then, <laughs> and it's like directed by a Korean American. Now, there's a lot of very easy yeah. explanations for this, like... Uh, upward mobility, people going to different schools, lessening of a type of immigrant anxiety, perhaps like uh, seeing like other people represented that make people think that they can do it too, but then they're already going to Harvard or USC film school or whatever. And so they can do it, you know, Um, like all of that I think is true, but 
I don't know. I don't like, do you have a sense of like what these books are about? Because I can't keep up with it. Right. I've read some <laughs> of them. I think some of them are quite good, you know, but like, uh, like, like, like it's Steph too Cha, big a for category. Example. <laughs> right. Steph Cha is like a friend of mine, but she, uh, you know, yeah, Steph there's Cha, a range. Uh, she, she writes like, you know, like I think what crime she books. Meets, yeah. yeah. Mystery books, I was gonna say. And they're like, I and she, I think they're great, you know, and it was it was always interesting like because I met her many years ago after my novel came out and she was like, I'm also writing crime books, you know, and, and and but she like went down a genre path, right, like at the very beginning and she was writing sort of these crime series. Right. And that was interesting to me because every Korean writer I knew was uh, trying to just be like a literary star in some sort of way. And that had sort of and there weren't many, many of us like I don't I think there were like three Asian people in my entire class at yeah. MFA. Right. Or two, maybe two or three. Right. And it was uh, and everybody was trying to do like experimental fiction or something like that, because that was like the trend at the time. But now it just seems like there's everything, you know, and it almost feels like the category itself is almost a, it's almost like irrelevant, right? Because there's so much of it, right? Like, I, I don't even know how to like think about the category except through economic terms, right? Which is just that like, okay, obviously. Right? Well, I was wondering about the Korean American question, but I figured it had, it has something to do with like some kind of transnational, like Korean American class, you know, like how, um, what was that? Uh, like my friend, Christina Moon, who Tammy and I were talking about, like she, she does a lot of stuff where it's like the, 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 they're studying like these garment factories where the, the, um, the factory is in like China or Korea um, owned by Koreans. And then the daughters of the Korean family are like run the fashion branding and boutique and like the right. other yeah. side of it, you know? So I, I kind of figured it was something kind of like that. Um, in a way that would operate huh. differently than for like Taiwanese or Japanese people or something. I had also assumed there was some kind of like transnational class thing that I wasn't quite seeing. Um, but I, I, the other thing, I do agree this thing. I mean, I, I was trying to think of like, what have I been reading? So I tried to pull like a stack of like more, I just showed in the background, like a stack of like more, like I think they're, they're still, um, like when I was running the Asian American Writers Workshop, one thing I talk about with like, you know, people like the two of you or with Hua is like, it was important not just to make a space that was like um, a space that desired some better form of cultural capital, but like wanted to be alternative and oppositional um, and yeah. not just be like, you know, we wish we we're the National Book Foundation or Penn or something, but we're Asian instead, totally. you know. And so I think even now, like there's a lot of Asian books, but there are also a lot of still like Asian American books that are like doing weird things or like more um less obviously representational or like in, in a different mm -hmm. mode and so i think there's still a task to try to find out like well what are those books that are doing something kind of different you know like it's funny how um teresa cha has sort of become this like weird right uh, i was just about figure, to say that know? it's yeah. that is um, the interesting because she's someone who right? is really her work really does deal with asian american issues and i mean we can talk about this a lot or a little bit but she's someone whose like work is resistant and was never intended to be like incorporated as a representational surface, you right. know, and it's explicitly it's about the like, representation is impossible. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Jay. Totally. Yeah, it's just for the listeners, you know, this word, what we're talking about is uh Dick T right. And, and uh, it is a, it has sort of become the centerpiece of what, how a lot of, I think very well-educated young Asian American people think about what like the, ideal of Asian American literature could be, right? That was definitely not true when I was coming up. Well, I, 
Really? Okay, so no, I... No, it really wasn't, but it was... No, not I, when you were coming up, but I think Dicte always has this, like, thing where, like, every 10 years or something, it has, like, a <laughs> Oh, yeah, okay, so maybe, yeah, I was in, I like, like, maybe I was in a fallow I period. don't know. I, I mean, like, 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 how many cool, And last year, like, there were those two art though. shows about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, maybe. Right, it is, it's, it's interesting how something experimental has become. It's not the sort of... Uh, coming like it's not the i am a person you know i always call it dignity porn right like see my humanity type of like my family or, or like you know like all the tropes that people now know enough to make fun of right like the smelly lunchbox and the um and the whole like well you know my parents didn't speak english and i wanted to be white type of stories like all those have been rejected yeah, yeah. and like what has become the centerpiece of it is this like very difficult and experimental book that um you know, I think it's very important. I think it. I, I think it's it's both like a very good and important change, and I also think that it sort of shows that perhaps the population that is now thinking about these things and the population that has ascended to being able to have the connections and stuff like this to have their books published are very, very, very well educated. Yeah, you know, I, like, I, um, I actually feel maybe this is a controversial thing, but I don't know if everyone needs to read Dictate, and I feel like there's yeah, this like. I, move where everyone has to be like this unheralded person who explored Asian American <laughs> identity. And I, I was a background source for the New York Times obituary that was like a neglected explorer of Asian American identity. And I was like, first of all, she did not explore Asian American identity. And I know, it's I, important yeah, to I think about her milieu. Like she was part of this like, like countercultural, like semiotic, post-structuralist, like downtown vibe where like her press was like publishing Werner Herzog and she was like driving like Christian Metz and Foucault <laughs> around in Berkeley, you know? And so I, I think it's She weird. seemed to care much more about French than Korean also, you know? Yeah, she was definitely. Like, and yeah, there's a lot of yeah. Chinese in the book too. And she loves Christian mm -hmm. saints. So it, I think it's funny where she's become also <laughs> like an, an object of like Asian American and Korean American chauvinism. But a lot of times Asian Americans like ignore like three fourths of the book and just pick right. like the first, like the kind of first two chapters and like a part of the end maybe. But then inversely the like post-structural people like kind of often just talk about like her film stuff or like yeah, some kind of like semiotics theory. And so oh, yeah. when I was trying to write about yeah. her, I was like, what's amazing about her is that she's still, she's so great. She's like larger than our like crappy like categories, mm -hmm. which are like a mm -hmm. kind of white, <laughs> deracialized, postmodern, high cultural capital thing. And then a racialized like, you know, Asian American, like post third world liberation movement thing. And okay. so she's constantly, I feel like doing like backflips where you, you're trying to trap her into some yeah, she's, norm and she is, she's not it. corny. She's not corny. Right? That's what, and like, but she's I think not afraid to feel interesting. to be like heartfelt and it, like there's sentiment. If you went to, if you yeah. went to like, if you like grew up and you went to, you sort of found yourself in these extremely exclusive spaces the life that you just described, like working for a press that publishes Werner Herzog and driving Foucault around, that's kind of like what you want. <laughs> <laughs> like it's more aspirational than like my generation. I feel very old, but it has been like 20 years since I started thinking about this stuff. Right? Yeah. Like it was like my book, my novel came out in 2011. I like was in graduate school in 2002. Um, that my generation, I think was much, was a little bit beyond the Amy Tan, like we knew not to do Amy Tan, right? But our thought was mostly like, man, it would be really great if I had a short story like uh, in the New Yorker and I had an apartment in New York and I could go to these parties that I have no idea what they look like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know? And now like the people just do that, right? And then, you mean it's um, like and then they're, 
Right. And now their aspiration is like, oh, how do I like escape this kind of like weird identity thing? Right. And well, even like 10 or 15 years think. ago, there was like this famous short story by Nam Le, who, you know, wrote the boat. And it's like, oh, like, yeah, this short yeah. story about like my dad is Vietnamese. I don't want to write about him because he but he's authentic. So I must. And it's sort of like postmodernism <laughs> in the service of right. um, some kind of feelings of like ethnic inauthenticity or something like that. And so it's this thing of right. like, oh, the only way to escape is to like frame, frame the, the, the tropiness of Asian American identity or something like that. But I guess right, what right. I'm trying to say is also like people would much rather read an essay about dictate than they would want to read like the contemporary version of Teresa Shaw and that like, you know, for example, like there's this poet, uh, Suyan Juliet Lee, who uh, is an experimental poet who used to do events where she'd hold like, you know, the part of the DMZ wall from in the Korean partition border, you know, and, but then she now does these things that are kind of like, um, there's some elements of Korean shamanism where she'll dress up in like a white robe or, I mean, it's not as, I'm, it's, it's like her own thing. And often it's kind of like pastoral landscape poetry, but it's about like the stars or something like that. And she's kind of writing this like science fiction poetry. I feel like there's like a lot of room for you know, it's the same way where, like, you look at Corky's photos, you look at Decay, and you're like, oh, there are other ways of, like, being, and I don't have to be this, like, you know, person trying to live out, like, some weird, like, third third generation inherited, like, New York, you know, bougie, like, Saul Bellow, whatever kind of dream or something. But <laughs> but then in the present, there are also That's my dream. Are... <laughs> yeah, that's, I was going to say, that's Jamie's fantasy. <laughs> How do I get rich? <laughs> but, but some of these people are already rich you know it's like crazy and then um i don't know i would say to them you know what like driving foucault around brooklyn very assimilationist it is in fact the end point of assimilation right <laughs> i should write that essay you know and just be like listen my generation was correct <laughs> <laughs> i don't need these art world pretensions you know um i just want achievement and accomplishment you know and to be respected but yeah no now that i think about it good lord well i guess i'm a dinosaur at this point i think i just have well there a, is a there's a the, the, we are in a very specific kind of moment because like Corky Lee's generation, he's like a particularly weird generation because he's like born, he's like kind of like coming of age when this 65 class shift is happening. And we're the people after that shift, but we still kind of remember what life was like before that, you know? Yeah. And uh, I was telling someone the other day, like maybe Maxine Hunkingston was like the end of Asian American literature. Like she was like, her mm. stuff is actually about the same things in the essay. Like her, she lives in Berkeley. Her home gets like destroyed through some slum clearance. And she's like, you know, I could, I could defeat demons using martial arts and my fantasies. But when it came to like rezoning, I could do nothing. And so she comes from this working class background, but then the, the history of Asian American literature is a social realist project. And then, so she does that in that book actually, but then she's like, well, I'm also going to add this speculative stuff where we can take it in a different direction and be, you know, postmodern and be like Rushdie and be this sort of expansive, experimental, dissociative, dreamy experimentalist. But then now we're, we're kind of in this different age where like, you know, that book was once more assigned in colleges than Hamlet, but I don't know if young people read it. And when we had, you know, fellows at, at AWW, I, we would be like, who do you want to be your mentor? And they would often name someone like their same age. And so it made me think about like the work of these photographs or the work of like your show in some ways or AWW is 
I think that people often think like canon building is like irretrievably hierarchical, but I think that you have to find ways to create usable memories, usable histories. And, uh, you know, there, there, even in the present, there are other ways of like being a writer or being Asian American, you know? So I think right. there's a lot of like yeah. opportunity there. Uh, not one thing, like whether it's the, this bourgeois assimilation novel, or, or if it's the, you know, the Chinese conservatives, you know, they, they don't have to stand in for the whole. Right. But I think they have a power that is interesting because I do think that like, if there, if somebody wrote a great critique of the Asian American cultural production at this moment, right. And said that everyone went to Stanford or Harvard and they're, if they're from Southern California, they're typically from the suburbs, right. They're not from, yeah the enclaves um you see a lot of this on social media by the way right yeah, like this yeah. sort of critique bubbling up and uh that their real superpower is their ability to interface with whiteness right that um because these people have spent their entire lives around fancy white people that they understand the types of things that are i say this right too um and a manner of self critique but I do think that there is possibility for stuff to come out that is going to be very destabilizing to this, right? But I don't think it'll come out through the traditional pathways, right? And I don't think it'll have the politics that, that, uh, or politics that will be particularly savory for a lot of the people who are within this milieu. But I don't know, Tammy, what do you think about this? Like, you know, it does seem like what we've created is like a, like sort of an upper, it is an upper middle class elite educated cultural production that is now like, really pumping out stuff at a rate that I never expected 20 years ago. Like it's like this world is incons was inconceivable to me um, in 2002. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like every, I was just thinking that every kind of immigrant group or sort of racial group has this, this stratum that is, yeah, excelling in is being represented in elite publishing. And right. I think what we're really talking about is like literary fiction, right? This is mostly what we're talking about because right. I think like in some genre fiction and probably like what Ken was talking about with experimental poetry and some like art world stuff, like maybe it's a little bit different or I don't know. I it, I think like all of this rush of books in the sort of um, like either in the immigrant mold or slightly departed from that, but are like kind of know what um, the big houses would want. That seems newish for Asian America, but I think it's also a, maybe like a publishing trend in which they have like slots for different groups. Right, right, right. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know how particular it is to us. I mean, I think except there's newness in like the number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think yeah, we have sure. this tendency to think that we're always the first to like experience something in Asian American history and like the past, you know, the, the Maxine or the Corky or Teresa Cha, they were authentic and we're not authentic and whatever, you know, whatever that belatedness is. But you know, like the point of the Joy Luck Club is it was the invention of Asian American literature as a marketing category. And so this is, we're just seeing like the, right. the next iteration of that stuff. And a lot of our, right, the right, same right. debates are like when you read a lot about like the history of like um, the Darkroom Collective, which is this like collection of black poets that originated out of Harvard, you know, uh, or which led to the founding of Kaveh Kanem, this poetry organization for black mm -hmm. poets. Like a lot of the discourses about the 90s as this age of, um, like post-black art, you know, and what does that mean? And like, what, what does it mean when, um, you know, some people were saying, well, you've left behind the old, like kind of Pan-African black nationalist political tradition, you know, and then other people are saying, well, we, we are doing something that's more liberated and more free. So, 
you know, I, in, when Women Warrior came out, there were people who were saying, you know, this book is like, um, you know, you're a sellout, your husband is white, you're Christian. This is a, an example of you being, you know, a bourgeois person interfacing white society. So the, these are not new debates. We're just saying like the latest incarnation of them. But I, I think that right. they're... But at a much bigger scale though, right? Like yeah. to be fair, I mean, like it's like there's way more... The numbers them, right? are different. Right. Yeah. Um, which does, I think, you know, I don't know, even just from a pure economic analysis is, you know, like is interesting. It shows a sort of penetration of a type of elite space by a lot of Asian people access probably being through elite education. But, um, I don't know. I, I, I think that the, like you said, there is always these sorts of bourgeois cultural production and there are sites of resistance to it. Right. Where do you think that sites of resistance to it are if, if they if they exist? This is my last question, and then we got to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of kind of like third spaces are very important, you know, whether they're direct political groups, like Tammy was saying, like CAV and, uh, you know, uh, Red Canary and, you know, China's and staff and workers and, you know, uh, but there are also cultural equivalents of that, like the Asian American Writers Workshop and Kundi Ma. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of Asian American presses too, like uh, Kaya and um, Kelsey Street, uh, Bamboo Ridge, uh, as well as a lot of mainstream presses that are doing a lot of interesting things, rediscovering the past of Asian American literature, like Penguin Press is publishing a lot of new things uh, that are kind of, you know, Korean American National Book Winning novel from like, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, or uh, also University of Washington is kind of publishing these things. But I think that there there are a lot of thriving, there's a lot of thriving stuff out there if you know where to look. And, you know, it could be experimental poetry, but it could be fiction too, you know. I mean, Bushra Rayman has a book right now that's called um, Roses in the Mouth of a Lion. It's sort oh, of yeah. about being it. in Queens. And it's all about sexual violence, actually. And it's sort of about, it's not about someone interfacing, oh, an Asian person interfacing with the white bourgeois world. It's about, you know, what does it mean to be in this conservative, you know, Muslim community? And, you know, it's worth remembering that a lot of these Chinese American conservatives are just conservatives, you know, and it, it's a book that's not about assimilation, but it, uh, kind of about what is this community like when there's no white person watching? What are, what are the internal politics of the space? And Ava Chin also has a new memoir coming out um, called Mott Street. That is a sort of like history. But I think there's a lot of things where it's a historical novel as a way to kind of reimagine a way out of the kind of confines that you're talking about, you know, where like in her case, she's trying to imagine not just the present, but like back into her family history. Yeah. And I mean, I, I read this really moving essay by Pankaj Mishra, where he was talking about, you know, in our age, people think that the novel is this sort of deprecated form. And he was thinking about the last 20 years of politics and the war in Iraq and the war on terror and how I can't really replicate what was so eloquent about it, but it, it was, he originally wrote it, I think for the wall street journal, but it was too political and they censored it. So it went on the London review blog, but it was about the importance of the novel as a form to express not uh -huh. the didactic right answer in politics, which I think is some of the anxieties that we're talking about. Like if only there was like an Asian American mass labor movement, if only we weren't so white, whatever that is. But what a novel can do is actually dramatize and examine all of these contradictions and kind of live within that weird ambiguity and certainty. And, you know, like kind of Corky's thing about being I'm a 100% authentic fake. And so maybe <laughs> there is some, it, maybe it doesn't have to be so um, 
such a duality and maybe there's ways where we can not be so hard on ourselves while also you know seeing how awesome you know a real left movement could be well on that note thank you ken thank you ken we're we like to uplift here um okay thanks for listening to our show uh we do this every week and if you'd like to support the show it's five dollars a month goodbye.substack.com and you'll get access to our discord server and bonus episodes all sorts of others well not that much other stuff but some other stuff occasionally but those are the two big cells and they're worth five dollars a month if i say so myself um if you'd like to contact us it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or uh ttsg pod at on twitter um until next week ken thank you for being on tammy i will see you soon so nice to see you guys bye